Let's just pray together, shall we? Father, we just worship you tonight because you are the God of all peace. Hallelujah. Father, you are he who inspires us. You are he who comes into our lives, Father, and gives us so much peace on every side, so much joy. Father, we just want to say tonight how much we really love you and how much we desire your word. We thirst after it, Father. Even as water in the wilderness, we thirst after the word of truth. Father, we thank you because in this desert, this dark world, we have waters galore to draw from. Father, we just pray now as we come to the end of this course that you will raise up Bible teachers, Father, in Jesus' name, right round this country, that, Father, in the name of Jesus, the Word of God may get out in clarity and purity, Father, and that we might see people in high places in this land of ours coming through into wonderful truth that the whole of our society may be affected. Oh, Father, we just pray for our country tonight. We ask in Jesus' name there should be a repentance, a drawing back, Father, from this precipice that we are in, Father. And, Father, I just pray in the name of Jesus that, Father, there should be repentance in our land. We know, Father, that repentance comes as the Word of God is revealed. And we pray, Father, indeed, for a spirit, Father, of perseverance upon us, that, Father, we should really hold forth the banner of truth and might understand the, the very truth we walk in, that we might be lights in a very dark world. We just ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Praise God. Amen. Well, we've spent many hours going through prophecy, and specifically the subject of fulfilled prophecy. You remember that we have covered quite a large number of topics during this course. And tonight we come to the final hour of study in the subject of fulfilled prophecy. It's also the last of the four studies on the Messiah that we've got to deal with. We've had three weeks on the Messiah. This is the very last. And so tonight specifically, we're focusing in on the subject of the suffering servant. And we're going to look at Jesus in his death. We're going to see him in his humiliation. Now, of course, during this uh, number three basic course, we've already seen a number of the scriptures that we've got to deal with. And so tonight, I'm going to take it slightly from a side view. And instead of looking at Old Testament prophecy specifically, we're going to come through into the Gospels, and we're going to see Old Testament prophecy that is stated as fulfilled in the Gospels. Now, of course, in the Old Testament, people had a very confused point of view as far as the Messiah was concerned. As they read the Scriptures and as they studied the Scriptures, they found there were two distinct um, prophetic streams as far as the Messiah was concerned. One was the prophetic stream that described him as the glorious coming king, the man who was coming in with exultation in his stream, the one who was going to be the great victor and the great conqueror, and they, they were the passage that, passages that the Jews tended to concentrate on. But there was another group of passages that they also saw, which actually dealt with the Messiah as the one who was the suffering servant, the one who was going to be humiliated, the one who was going to be rejected, the one who was going to be denied on every side. And they couldn't bring these two quite together. They studied and studied and studied, and they tried to. The theologians among them actually said, well, we've got apparently two messiahs. We've got one messiah who's coming in humiliation. We've got another messiah who is coming in victory. And there were the two messiahs. Other people said, well, we don't quite understand this. But as at the moment we're oppressed by the Romans or oppressed by these people, we're not concentrating on the humiliated or rejected Messiah, we're going to concentrate on the Messiah who's coming in glory. And you always found that when uh, oppression was deeply upon the Jews, it was always the exalted king that they started talking about. They started reading all the Old Testament passages, talking about Jesus as the mighty one who's coming, with a sword in his hand, with flames of fire coming out of his mouth, and so on. And he was the one who was going to throw back the oppressor, that's what they said, who was going to throw back the armies that were oppressing the Jews, and we've just got to hang on just another hour more, and he'll be here. That was the type of, of uh, teaching that they had in those days. 
We can understand, of course, how to relate these two parts of Scripture. Because actually, there weren't going to be two messiahs, there was only going to be one messiah. And instead of there being two messiahs, there was going to be one messiah coming twice. The first time, of course, in humiliation and in suffering. The second time coming in triumph and victory and glory. Now, to the Jews who were standing in a prophetic stream, in other words, the two were ahead of them, they couldn't sort it out. We have the marvelous advantage of hindsight. Because, you see, one of the comings has already occurred. This means that we are standing, as it were, in the middle of the two. And so we can look back on the one and understand how the prophecies related to the first advent were fulfilled. And by checking that over, we can then go on and study the ones that are to be fulfilled. In fact, that's what this course has been about. That's exactly what we've done. And what is is the conclusion we've come to? That the Old Testament prophecies related to the first advent of Christ have been literally fulfilled to the letter. Otherwise, of course, I couldn't possibly give a course on fulfilled prophecy, because how would we know whether it had been fulfilled? It has been fulfilled because we can look and see that it's been fulfilled, and it's very clear. So, in the next course, we can look to the future and see what is going to come. Now, there is a very revealing passage found in 1 Peter, which tells us exactly what the prophets received from the Lord. So, would you turn with me, please, to 1 Peter and chapter 1. All right, and here is, of course, information that we already know, but now we're putting down on tape. He has been talking in verses 1 to 9 about the salvation that we have come into, this glorious salvation that has been revealed. And he's writing about 65 AD. This is about 32 years after the death of the Lord Jesus. And he's talking about this amazing thing that came upon him 32 years ago, but which still has to be revealed to some of the people he's writing to, some of the Jews that he's actually writing to. And so he has to relate it. As he's writing specifically to Jews, he has to relate it back to the Old Testament Scriptures. And so in verse 10, he's talking about salvation, and this is what he says about salvation. Of which salvation the prophets, he says, these are old Testament prophets. Who was a prophet, by the way? What do we mean by a prophet? A prophet was anyone who communicated the Word of God and the revealed truths of God to the people. A bit more than that, I think, they not only communicated them, but whenever they spoke them, they became the Word of God. So that, for example, when Jeremiah gave a sermon, as it is written down, it is now not Jeremiah's words, it is the very words of God and the very words of truth as far as we are concerned. That is what a prophet is all about. And so here he's saying, now these Old Testament prophets, they searched into our salvation. Some people think they didn't know about Jesus. It's totally wrong. They knew about Jesus. Perhaps they didn't know his name, although I even think that some of them had guessed at the name of the Messiah. But they knew certain things about him. We see that beautifully, of course, uh, in John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the last of the Old Testament prophets. And his ministry was finally to complete the task that had been begun by all the other Old Testament prophets. That was his job, to bring them all into focus. And what did John the Baptist do? He didn't have a book in front of him that described Jesus physically, saying what color his hair was, what color his eyes were, how tall he was going to be, what his chest size was, what his first word was going to be, and so on. So that he could say, oh, well, according to this, I, I think you might be uh, the Messiah. Is that right? Didn't do that. He received revelation just like the Old Testament prophets did by the Spirit of God within him. You see, sometimes we think, oh, how could they have managed without a Bible? They didn't need a Bible. They had the Holy Spirit revealing truth to them. And what happened with John the Baptist? There was a crowd of people. Jesus was just one in the crowd. He didn't look extraordinary. 
He didn't look particularly bright. It says he had no form or comeliness that we should look upon him. He was just one of the crowd. But as John the Baptist looked upon him, the Holy Spirit came upon John the Baptist and he uttered words which were prophetic. He says, behold, he says, pointing to Jesus, the Lamb of God which taketh away the sins of the world. The Holy Spirit have revealed it to him. Praise God. And of course, Acts 19 tells us what John's message was. Why? It was the same message of all the Old Testament prophets. What did they say? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou wilt be saved, was their message. Believe on the Lord. Believe on the Messiah. Believe on the one who was to come. Then you will be saved. And in Acts 19, it actually says, the disciples of John meet Paul and they say, well, the message from John was, believe on him who was to come after. That is, on Jesus. And so it was the message of all the Old Testament prophets. Let's read on, verse 10. Of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied, look, of the grace that should come unto you. They prophesied of the grace that's coming to you. Did you think they prophesied about law? Well, they did. Do you think they prophesied about judgment? Well, they did. But never was their judgment without first the revelation of the salvation that was going to come. And so they prophesied about grace which was going to come. All right, verse 11. Here's what they did. They searched what? That means the details. And what manner of time when he was coming? What or what manner of time? And look at this. The Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify. Here is the Holy Spirit talked of. The Holy Spirit has many different titles. He's called the Spirit of Holiness, sometimes the Spirit of Righteousness, sometimes he's called the Spirit of Christ or the Spirit of Messiah. Just keep your finger in the place, by the way, for, for just a moment, and turn with me, please, to Romans chapter 8 and verse 9. <clears throat> Romans 8 and verse 9. And here's exactly the phrase the same phrase used of the Holy Spirit in us. Romans chapter 8 and verse 9. And it says here, and talking about all believers, by the way, but ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwells in you. And this is a clear statement saying, if the Holy Spirit dwells in you, you are of God. If the Holy Spirit does not dwell in you, you are not of God. It's as easy as that. This Holy Spirit who is the engagement ring. This Holy Spirit who is the earnest, the seal of our very salvation. If he dwells in you, you belong to Christ. Right? You are a born-again one. If he doesn't, I'm sorry, you have nothing to do uh, with God and nothing to do with salvation. Now it says, now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, can you see that? The Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And the Spirit of Christ there, of course, is doing an amazing work in each one of us. With some of us, it looks as if we've got quite a lot, lot further to go. With others, we are already beginning to see a manifestation of the work. What is the work that the Spirit of Christ is doing? Why? The Spirit of Christ is revealing Jesus in us and through us. So that as we go on every day with Jesus, we become a little more like him. The Holy Spirit transforms us from one degree of glory, as it says, to another degree of glory. That's what he's doing in us. But what did he do in the Old Testament saints? Well, back to 1 Peter, and here's what he, he was doing. He was revealing Jesus to them. Not through them, but to them. So that it meant any person who was open to God, any man who wanted to diligently seek the Lord, any man who wanted to inquire into these things, by the Spirit of Christ, he would have Jesus revealed to him. He may not know the name, but he knew that Messiah was going to come. This is, by the way, this process that's going on behind the Iron Curtain today. Many, many wonderful believers in northern Russia, in China, may never have heard of the name of Jesus, but the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, is revealing Jesus sovereignly to them. And there are so many examples that we could quote where people who have apparently never been contacted by the white man 
or by civilization, if uh, you hear the sarcasm slightly in my voice. They, they're suddenly contacted, and they find they're already worshipping the Lord Jesus. They don't know his name, but he's already there. Why? The Spirit of Christ has revealed Jesus to them. And that's exactly what used to happen in the Old Testament. It was the Spirit of Christ in them that caused them to diligently seek after the one who was to be revealed. All right, there it is. Searching, verse 11, what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand. There it is, that is prophecy. A testifying beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. Now we'll have a look at that in just a moment. Verse 12, unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Spirit sent down from heaven. Which things the angels desire to look into. And today the church is preaching the manifold wisdom of God, even to the angels. But you see, these prophets knew that it wasn't for their day. It was for a future day that they had received information. And of course it was specifically for Paul and for Peter, who were going to study the Old Testament scriptures and find out all about this wonderful salvation. Have you ever been through major books of the Bible and seen just how many parts of them are actually taken directly from the Old Testament? Go through the book of Romans sometime. Just underline all the quotations from the Old Testament. It's quite staggering. You begin to think, well, perhaps Paul didn't write this uh, book. Perhaps all he did was join together the writings of all sorts of other men. And that's exactly what he did do. He received it all by studying what the Old Testament prophets said. All right, just go back then to the end of verse 11. And here's what they, they received beforehand. They received knowledge about the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. Now, what is this glory? Does this mean the resurrection and the ascension, or does it mean the second advent? Because it says, which should follow. Which is it? Well, fortunately for us, the phrase sufferings and glory are used in two other passages in 1 Peter. So we can tell exactly what the true meaning is. Turn with me, first of all, to 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 13. 1 Peter 4 and verse 13. And here are the two words, sufferings and glory. Verse 13. But rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings. So whatever we go through, we must rejoice. He's been through it first. We, know, we come into his sufferings. He's already been there. Whatever it is, he's been there first. So rejoice when you come into these sufferings. But look what it says that when his glory shall be revealed, future, and yet it's written after the ascension, and after, of course, therefore, the resurrection. So the glory here refers to what? The second advent. So it says that when his glory shall be revealed, you may be glad also with exceeding joy. And in 1 Peter 5, verse 1, the elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, the sufferings again, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. What, therefore, is it talking about? Why, it's talking about nothing else than the second advent. And they received information on these two things, the sufferings on the one hand and the glory that shall be revealed. Praise God. Now, they received it by the Holy Spirit. Isn't that an amazing thing? And you know, the Holy Spirit will illumine certain words of truth, and they become his word. And it doesn't even have to be the words of a Christian. Why? God has been known to use an ass before now to actually speak the words of truth. The important thing is that the anointing of the Spirit is upon it. Today, even, although it's not up to the canon of Scripture, many of us receive truth from our non-Christian neighbors. And we know after they've said something to us, we just know it's the word of truth. God has illumined it. Can I just prove that to you? There's a lovely passage in John where God takes words that are not meant the way God meant them and he just puts his anointing upon them. And if you told the man that this was going to happen, he, he would have collapsed. Turn with me to John chapter 11 and let's just see this. John chapter 11 and I'm beginning verse 47. 
All right, verse 47. Here is Jesus. He's doing miracles in the land. And who's getting stirred up? The religious leaders are getting stirred up. Religious leaders always get stirred up when God starts moving in the land. They always do. The first thing that affects them is, oh dear, we're going to lose our position. Now hold on. This is too challenging. We like it as it was. Thank you ever so much. And here is Jesus. He's doing wonders in the land. So they call a meeting. This is a very solemn meeting. Verse 47. Then gathered the chief priests and the Pharisees a council and said, what do we? What are we going to do? They say, for this man doeth many miracles. We can't do miracles. He's doing miracles. All the people are deceived by these real miracles that he's doing. That is the type of uh, implication here. These were the signs of the Messiah. We understand this, don't we? And by the way, they understood it. They knew, all right, what was happening, and they wanted Jesus out of the way. Then they scratch their heads and say, well, look at this, verse 48. If we leave him alone thus, all men will believe on him. That's going to be the first disaster. But the second disaster is, if they believe on him and follow him, the Romans shall come and take away both our place we religious leaders, you see, they were semi-autonomous at this time. In other words, they were allowed to do their own religion as long as the Romans weren't stirred up too much. And they said, wow, if this continues, the Romans will come into the land, we're going to be removed from our exalted position, and what is more, he'll take away the, they'll take away the nation. All right? They'll take away both our place and nation. And verse 49, we have this man, Simon Caiaphas. Here is the man, he is son-in-law of that gangster Annas, right? He, Annas was one of the most dreadful people, and of course he collected family around him just like himself. Caiaphas was nothing but um, a murderer. That's what he, he didn't care who he put down, he didn't mind what he did as long as they got out of his way. I will call him a sly opportunist. Any, he, he was prepared to do anything as long as he got his own way. And verse 49 reveals what he said. He was noted, by the way, for being extremely rude, and we have him being very rude to the religious leaders. Not quite as rude as Jesus was, but still quite rude. Verse 49. One of them, named Caiaphas, being the high priest that same year, and he was high priest for 18 years, by the way, said unto them, Ye know nothing at all. What on earth does that mean? He says, You pathetic lot. Honestly, he says, you make a statement like that. Why? He says, I despair. You haven't begun in treachery. That's the type of thing he's saying. All right, ye know nothing at all, verse 50, nor consider that it is expedient for us, which means it is for our advantage. It is to our advantage that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation perish not. Now, what did he mean? Was he being all nice and religious? He wasn't. He was being crafty and cunning when he said this. He said, are you lamenting because the Romans are likely to get stirred up by Jesus? He said, poor you fools. He said, that's the very excuse we need. He said, you see, these people are going to raise Jesus up as someone special, but all we have to say is, well, I'm sorry, but you see, he's causing insurrection. If he causes insurrection, the Romans will be in. No, no, I'm sorry. There's only one thing he's got to be put to death. We don't want him put to death, of course. But you see, it's for the Romans that he's got to be put to death. Wasn't that clever? That's sly, you see. And that's what he was saying. Of course, he was exactly wrong. He thought, put Jesus to death, the Romans then would spare our nation and they won't interfere in our nation. He was exactly wrong. In fact, it was because of the death of Jesus that uh, just 37 or so years later, the Roman armies marched into Israel as part of God's judgment upon the Israeli nation, and as a fulfillment of the fifth cycle of discipline, of course. Right? They reject him, and so a foreign nation will take them over. And here they are in the fourth cycle of discipline. If you don't know what I'm talking about, hear the tape. Um, here they are in the fourth cycle, and it takes one more thing only before the fifth cycle hits them. So he was exactly wrong. And yet, praise be to God, because in the spiritual realm, what he said were the very words of truth. And the marvelous thing was that in that council there were men who were positive to God and who wanted to go God's way. And as he said the words, although he didn't mean it God's way, the Holy Spirit just took the words and illumined them to those who were positive to God. 
And God turned those words round into a prophecy in the way that he took Balaam's words and turned them round into a prophecy. And look what it, I read it again, the end of verse 49, ye know nothing at all, he says, nor consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation perish not. And this spake he not of himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus, Jesus should die for that nation. And the spiritual truth was that Jesus was going to come Jesus was going to die, and that through his death, any who believed on him would be saved. More than that, that if the Jewish nation would turn to him, they too would be saved. It is because of this prophecy, by the way, that we know that Jesus is coming again, and the whole of the Jewish nation shall turn to him, and they shall indeed be saved. Why? This is the greatest Bible truth that Caiaphas ever gave. He would have been amazed if he'd known it. I'd sometimes wonder whether any of the disciples told him afterwards of the glorious truth that uh, had come from his own mouth. Verse 52, And not for that nation only, but that also he should gather together in one the children of God that were scattered abroad, praise God. From that day on, they took counsel to kill him. Fine. Now can you see, there is the Holy Spirit taking ordinary words and making them his own word. And many prophecies given in the Old Testament are simply words spoken in a man's situation which God has illumined, illumined and made them true for Jesus. In fact, there are 35 prophecies that come to pass within a space of 72 hours connected with the betrayal of Jesus, connected with the sufferings of Jesus, connected with his death, his burial. In 72 hours, 35 of them come exactly to pass. All right, I'm going to have a look at some of these. Let's go, first of all, to the one we saw last week, shall we? Turn with me, please, to Matthew 27 and verse 9. Matthew 27, verse 9. You should, of course, all know this already. This is old hat, this is by way of revision. We come here to the prophecy of the 30 pieces. Let me just read it through and, and point out again it was literal. All right, we know, of course, how it happened. Verse 9, Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him that was valued, uh, whom they of the children of Israel did value. And we saw last week it was indeed thirty pieces of silver that were given. Incidentally, why does it say here Jeremiah the prophet? Whereas we saw last week, it was Zechariah the prophet that did it. Why? The explanation is very simple. And Before we move on, let's just have a look at it. It is this, that uh, all the Old Testament was written on scrolls in the ancient world. And the scrolls were huge. If you got a Bible in the ancient world, a scroll, it would be so large, you'd need a lorry to transport it. So what they did, they divided it into five sections. And they called the sections according to the first book of the section. And the prophet Je uh, Zechariah was found in the scroll, which was called the prophet Jeremiah. And so they always talked of the books according to the first book in the scroll. So here he is quoting the scroll. And he's saying, if you want to check it, why? It's in the prophet Jeremiah. Get the prophet Jeremiah, zip it through to Zechariah, and there is exactly uh, the prophecy that has been fulfilled. Praise God. All right, when we come on to the sufferings of Jesus... And see the other 34, you can go through the 34 yourself. I'm going to deal with about nine very rapidly now. You'll find they really center in two main passages of Scripture. Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53. They center in those two. These are key. Now, of course, we've dealt with these particular passages in some detail. But let's just turn to Psalm 22, just read it through, and it should begin clicking. All right, Psalm 22... And I begin verse 1. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me and from the words of my screaming? Amazing. Here's David writing, but it was going to be the very inner thoughts and the very words of Jesus on the cross. Two. Oh my God, I cry in the daytime. That's the three hours of daylight on the cross. But thou hearest not. And in the night season... And I'm not silent. That was the last three hours on the cross. 
But thou art holy, O thou that inhabitest the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in thee. They trusted thou didst deliver them. They cried unto thee and were delivered. They trusted in thee and were not confounded. But I am a worm, one of these crushed worms, to make regal garments. And no man, a reproach of men and despised of the people. All they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head. And what do they say? He trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in them. And here's Jesus, a thousand years before Jesus died on the cross, and he's already seen what the people are going to do. And he writes it down before it occurs. Verse 9. But thou art he that took me out of the womb. Thou didst make me hope when I was upon my mother's breast. I was cast upon thee from the womb. Thou art my God from my mother's belly. Be not far from me, for trouble is near. There is none to help. Many bulls have compassed compassed me about. A bull simply was a picture of a harsh religious ruler. Many bulls, the rulers are against me. And then he says, uh, many strong bulls of Bashan. Bashan was the best bull area of of, uh, Israel and Palestine. The best bulls came from Bashan or Bashan. And so he says, they're not just ordinary people either. They're the best politicians and they're against me. That's what he says. Have they beset me around? They gaped upon me with their mouths as a ravening and roaring lion. I'm poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like a pot's herd. My tongue cleaveth to my jaws and thou hast brought me into the dust of death. For dogs have compassed me. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierce my hands and my feet. Amazing. Do you remember we saw this earlier in the course? Here, a thousand years before Jesus was crucified, is a prophecy that he was crucified. And yet it was 500 years after this was written that crucifixion became a means of capital punishment. Why? The Jews used to stone people. They certainly didn't crucify them. And here is God in his foreknowledge revealing the exact details of Jesus' death. All right? Verse 17, I may tell, which means count. I can count all my bones, he says. They look and stare upon me. They part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. Be, but be not thou far from me, O Lord. O my strength, haste thee to help me. Deliver my soul from the sword. My darling is my precious life. My precious life from the power of the dogs. Save me from the lion's mouth. For thou hast heard me from the horns of the unicorn? No, the wild oxen. Now, there is a major prophetic passage, and it was fulfilled by Jesus on the cross. Let's go to the Gospels now, shall we? And let's see how in the Gospels, and especially in the Gospel of John, oddly enough, they are constantly giving the history of Jesus, but not leaving it there. They then go on and say, and by the way, this isn't just uh, events that are occurring uh, by chance. These have all been given prophetically and are being fulfilled. And what they're saying is, God is the God of history. God is the one who knows everything that's going to happen. He's the one who has caused all of this and seen it happen before it happens. Turn first to John chapter 13. John and chapter 13 and verse 18. Now I'm just going to read these through and we'll see how they're fulfilled. John 13 and verse 18. Uh, Here he is. They're just about to have this first communion service and he now talks about fulfilled prophecy. Verse 18. I speak not of you all. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. And he quotes a scripture. Which scripture? He quotes Psalm 41 and verse 9. He that eateth bread with me hath lifted up his heel against me. He that eateth bread with me hath lifted up his heel against me. And the point of this, and when David uh, wrote that, he was making this very important point. In the ancient world, when you had a meal with someone, it was a sign of the closest possible friendship. You never, ever, ever betrayed someone who had eaten with you. It was a covenant meal, rather like our communion service. It is a covenant meal. You enter into a covenant with that person. And David says, why? He says, I don't even know who my friends are. 
He says, even the people that I'm in covenant with have let me down. And Jesus says, the person who betrays me is going to be someone who has been my friend, who has been near me, has been a close confidant, and more than that, has actually eaten of my bread. And we know this glorious story, don't we? That at the end, that uh, further on in this passage, Jesus actually takes the first piece of bread, he dips it into the sauce, a sign of tremendous love, and he hands it to the person he loves perhaps more than anyone else. And he turns round to Judas Iscariot and hands him the bread. Amazing. This is fulfillment of Scripture. He that has eaten even my bread. Do you see how literal it is? Literal. Didn't just mean being my company. It meant something deeper than all of that. All right, there's the first. It was prophesied he'd be betrayed by a friend, and betrayed by a friend is what actually happened. Now Mark 15, 27. Mark 15, 27. He's on the cross. And here is an amazing thing because Jesus could not possibly have arranged this fulfillment. This was outside his hands altogether. Look what it says, verse 27. And with Jesus, with him, they crucified two thieves, the one on his right hand, the other on his left hand, and the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, and he was numbered with the transgressors. He who was the embodiment of holiness, he who was God's own son, was not going to be counted righteous, but he'd be counted even as a transgressor. And not just a minor transgressor, a cursed transgressor. For it says, everyone who hangeth on the tree is cursed. And whoever is crucified outside the city was especially cursed. Jesus became a transgressor of transgressors. All right? Now there it is. He that was numbered with the trans- he was numbered with the transgressors. That is Isaiah 53 and verse 9. I beg your pardon, verse 12. Verse 12. All right? He was numbered with the transgressors. I wasn't meaning to say this, but earlier on in Isaiah 53, it actually says that he entered the realm of death with the wicked. That was also fulfilled at this particular point. Jesus died with wicked men around him. Oh, and the glory and the love of Jesus. For one of those wicked men was going to be the first Christian. A Christian is someone who is a believer after the death of Jesus. And here was this man, he was born again on the cross, Jesus dies, he becomes the very first in the new revelation. A thief on the cross. That's Romans 8.28, if ever I've seen one. Praise God. Matthew 27, verse 46. And here is one that Jesus fulfills. Isn't this amazing? Most Christians have got this all wrong over prophecy. They receive a prophecy and they think that God's got to fulfill it. No. If God opens the door so that you can fulfill it, you should fulfill it. Praise God. And here is Jesus on the cross. He didn't have to say these words, but he knew the words and so he said them. Marvelous. We've got to walk, you see, in the paths of truth. And when we can fulfill a word of prophecy, we must fulfill a word of prophecy. Here he is, verse 46, about the ninth hour, three o'clock in the afternoon, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And where have we read it? Psalm 22, verse 1. And Jesus says it. Praise God. All right? Let's have a look at another one that he fulfills uh, by himself. Turn with me to uh, John 19. In fact, we'll be in John 19 for the next few moments. John 19. I'll just go to verse 28 and verse 29 first to show you how he fulfills Scripture. After this, here's Jesus on the cross. Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, isn't that lovely? It's almost as if Jesus was on the cross and he's ticking off the prophecies, one after the other. And he says, why? They're nearly all finished now. And he knew that when the last one was finished, that he could finish, or that would affect him in his suffering and in his death, it was time to go. He didn't wait round, by the way. As soon as it was done, off he went to the Father. He had fulfilled the very word of God. And I'll tell you this, in your life, the moment you have fulfilled God's pre-planned a path for your life, you will leave the face of this earth. 
And some of us may complete it this year. Some of us may complete it next year. But when we go, we know it's all done. Praise God. And here he's saying, why? There's only one other scripture left that I can possibly fulfill. There are others to be fulfilled, but this one I can do. And what did he know? He knew that in Psalm 69, verse 21, there is a prophecy about him that he actually drank some gall and vinegar. He knew that. Gall and vinegar was simply an aspirin in the ancient world. He didn't take much. He just sipped it and then rejected it. You see? Now, here he is on the cross. He knows that has to be fulfilled. So what does he do? He says, why? I thirst, he says. Praise the Lord. Wonderful fulfillment of prophecy. Here is the, how meek Jesus was as far as his God was concerned. Verse 28. Um, Knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. Do you see that? He did it because he wanted the scripture fulfilled. So what did they do? They fulfilled the scripture. He gave them the key and they fulfilled it. Verse 29. Now there was set a vessel full of vinegar and they filled a sponge with vinegar, put it upon hyssop and put it to his mouth. When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. Why? Because he'd done all that he could possibly do. It's no mistake that in this gospel narrative it comes directly after. It's no mistake at all. He had completed prophecy. If he had died before that was completed, the word of God would have been broken. But Jesus didn't. He fulfilled prophecy to the dot. Go further back. Go to verse 23. And here's something that Jesus couldn't possibly uh, manage or, or bring about, and yet something that came about. Verse 23. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts this was normally done. The people who crucified a man could take a portion of the uh, possessions that belonged to that particular man. To every soldier apart, and also his coat. Now the coat was without seam, woven from the top throughout. Isn't this amazing? Surely haven't we been taught that Jesus always walked around as a poor man, hadn't we? Isn't this the reason that some people walk around with just a piece of material over them and a rope tied round their waist? Isn't that the reason? And yet here is a garment which even the Romans, who lived among the fashion houses of Rome, thought was magnificent. And they wanted it. And they said, now hold on, we're not going to divide this. This is too good. We're going to cast lots for this one. Because they actually wanted to be seen in the garment that Jesus wore. Very important point. Praise God. Marvelous. I don't think he was the pauper that some people try to make out. He wasn't. He had certainly one excellent piece of garments, just like most ministers have one excellent suit. <laughs> praise God. And some of us have more than one, praise God. Verse 24, They said therefore among themselves, Let us not rend it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled which saith, Psalm 22, verse 18, by the way, They parted my raiment among them, and for my vesture did they cast lots. These things therefore the soldiers did. All right, John 19 again, and now we come on to verse 32. This is just to show you the fulfillment of Scripture and the way John brings it out constantly. Now, there are two Scriptures that need to be fulfilled. One, they didn't break a bone in his body, but two, they pierced him. How was it going to come to pass? We know the answer very well. They came to the crosses. They had to take the bodies down from the cross, crosses, and they knew that after six hours, most people wouldn't be dead. So what did they do? They had to break the legs of the people on the cross. They did it to one thief. They did it to the other thief, who must have been rejoicing because it meant paradise was just before him. And then they came to Jesus, last of all. And when they came to him, he was dead already. And they stopped. And what did they do instead? To check whether he was dead, they just pierced his side. Because a dead body doesn't bleed. And of course, most of you know that fresh blood didn't pour out of him, but blood and water, showing that he died from a broken heart, or rather he died with a broken heart. Let's just read it. Then came the soldiers, verse 32, and break the legs of the first and of the other, which was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was dead already, they break not his legs. But one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side, and forthwith came there out blood and water, 
And he that saw it bear record, and his record is true, and he knoweth that he saith true, uh, that he saith true, that ye might believe. For these things were done, that the scripture should be fulfilled, a bone of him shall not be broken. Psalm 34, verse 20. It's going to be fulfilled, and Jesus fulfilled it. And verse 37 from Zechariah 12:10, and again another scripture, they shall look on him whom they have pierced. These are marvelous things, for it was the exact fulfillment of Scripture, fulfilled literally to the letter. Then, of course, the rest of the chapter deals with that other fulfillment, when Joseph of Arimathea went for the body of Jesus and laid him in his own tomb, fulfilling the Scripture that we find he shall be with the rich in his death. Praise God. Now, that's just a selection including the Zechariah one, all I've done is give you ten fulfilled prophecies. But marvelously fulfilled within a short space of time. I tell you, the chances of it happening are so minute it's impossible. Jesus fulfilled them to the dot because he was Messiah. And the Old Testament scriptures gave witness of the fact that he was the Messiah because they clearly showed what Messiah was going to do. And he fulfilled it. Here is the suffering servant. But I can't end the course on that note. For history is not complete and neither is prophecy. There is something more, oh much more, for Jesus rose from the dead. Praise God. And it says in 1 Corinthians 15, it says, He died, he suffered, he died, he rose from the dead according to the scriptures. And I must come unto the resurrection. For if the resurrection is not true, then there'll be no second coming. And as now we have 14 hours on the second coming, we've got to establish that Jesus is indeed risen from the dead. We know it, of course. I mean, when the eunuch in his chariot was traveling across the wilderness and reading Isaiah 53 and Philip comes up, he says, I don't understand this. Is Isaiah talking about himself or talking about someone else? And what does it say? Philip got in and spoke to him of Jesus. Jesus fulfilled in Isaiah chapter 53. But the passage we must go to, and we must end on, is found in Acts chapter 2. Here is Peter, and here he is telling the Jews that Jesus, whom they crucified, has risen from the dead. And whenever you're speaking to Jews, you've got to quote Old Testament scripture to prove what you're saying. And here it is. He says, in 50 days, a body hasn't been brought forward, for Jesus has indeed risen from the dead. Aha. Uh -huh. He says, so what? Is the resurrection prophesied? Yes, it surely is. Let's begin. Verse 22. Acts chapter 2, verse 22. You men of Israel, he says, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs which God did by him in the midst of you. The signs of the Messiah. See that? As ye yourselves also know, because you saw them, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. Hallelujah. You think you put him to death. You think the Romans put him to death. You think that you were so clever, but God knew all about it before it happened. Praise the Lord. Ye have taken, and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God has raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. It is not possible that he should stay down. It is contrary to the law of the spirit of life that was in him. He had to rise up. You couldn't keep him down. Praise God. Wonderful. Oh, all you Jews with your theology, you couldn't keep him down. But he bubbled to the surface. He had to. Right. Then it goes, verse 25, and here is his scriptural justification. For David speaketh concerning him. He quotes Psalm 16 here, verse 8 to verse 11. You see how they knew their Bibles, right? He didn't get the scroll out and unwind it. He knew it. Look what he says. And here's David speaking. He was talking about his own position, and yet he's prophesying. God spoke through him. He says, I foresaw the Lord always before my face. Praise God. The Lord. The Lord. He saw Messiah always before his face. Gave him hope, this did. 
Who revealed the Messiah to him? Why? The Spirit of Christ revealed the Christ to him. I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand that I should not be moved, he says. Therefore did my heart rejoice, my tongue was glad. Moreover, also my flesh shall rest in hope. He says, when I die, I won't just die into nothing, I die in hope because there's going to be a resurrection. And the resurrection depends on who he is, not on who I am. Why? This would be a jolly good talk by someone in the church. And this is what David was saying. Then he says, verse 27, and though David said it, it was going to be the very words and innermost thoughts of Christ himself. Because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. And as soon as he'd said it, all the Jews said, oh, come on, David was talking about himself. What do you mean by saying they're the words of Jesus? That's David speaking. Oh, yes, he says. Right? Verse 28, he continues. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Isn't that lovely? How many of us have said that about Jesus? He's made known to us the ways of life. Thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. Then he says, verse 29, men and brethren... Let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David. He says, because you think this passage was fulfilled by him. But he says, oh, it can't be, he says. By your eyes it can't be. He says that he is both dead and buried. He is dead and he is buried. And his sepulcher is with us unto this day. And by the way, they knew it. Because David was buried on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. He was buried on Mount Zion. And more than that, Herod had actually desecrated the tomb. That meant that Herod had broken into the tomb. They'd actually received notification that the bones were still there and rotting fast. They knew David had seen corruption in his body. So he says, so it can't be David speaking of himself. So who is he speaking about? He says, verse 30, David was king. Yeah, but he was a prophet, he says. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne, that's the Davidic covenant, God promised one of your own seed would be raised up. He, seeing this before, a thousand years before it happened, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses. Praise God. In other words, even in his resurrection, Jesus fulfilled prophecy. Wonderful. For it means now we are ready to leave the suffering servant and to cast our eyes onto the Jesus that we now see and the Jesus that we shall see in bodily manifestation, the glorious, exalted King, who is coming as the great victor, as the great and mighty conqueror, we have 14 hours ahead of us of Jesus as the great king. God bless you all. Amen.